From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we feature true personal stories about automobiles from writers Stephen Lewis, Andy Rosenthal, and Catherine Mayer. The Fairlane was an underpowered automatic transmission junker with tan naugahyde seats and a cracked dashboard. You sit in your Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, hands clenched white on the wheel. It is the final hour that separates July from August of 1987. My dad was a motorhead, a gearhead, a grease monkey, buying and fixing cars his entire life. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer David Masello recalls the maddening frustrations of working on deadline in an environment where the city never sleeps and the noise never stops. For 12 years, I've lived across the street from a construction site. Never a good situation for a person who makes his living as a writer. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Do you remember your first car? How about your worst car? What about your road test or that first big road trip you made on your own? The stories we're presenting in today's show were recorded in the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle, New York, at a Reed 650 live event called The Car. First up is Stephen Lewis. Stephen Lewis is a longtime freelancer and a longtime member of the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute faculty. Here's Stephen Lewis reading Driving into Darkness. If memory serves me correctly, and even if it doesn't, Richard's mother would have packed enough Mott's apple juice, roast beef, and turkey sandwiches, pears and apples, Oreo cookies, and paper napkins for the entire senior class at Wheatley High. But this was no class trip, and there were just four heedless boys piling into my 1956 Ford Fairlane at 11 p.m. on a cold November night. Recently painted British Racing Green, 2995, at Earl Scheib on Jericho Turnpike, the Fairlane was an underpowered automatic transmission junker with tan naugahyde seats and a cracked dashboard, something local dads would drive back and forth to the train station, what my father called a beater. For me, it beat the hell out of taking the school bus or hitching rides or worse, being driven anywhere by my parents. It was freedom. I suspect Mr. Gaynor gathered us around the oval pine table in their Albertson dining room, unfolded his Rand McNally roadmap and showed us inch by excruciating inch the way, the LIE, to the BQE, to the Verrazano Narrows, and across Staten Island to the Guthals Bridge, and then the Long Jersey Turnpike. And aside from an unscheduled stop at the Joyce Carey Rest Area, 
So John, the most mechanical of this most unmechanical crew, could jerry-rig the hanging spark-spinning muffler. We headed straight down 95, rumbling through darkly industrial Baltimore at 3 a.m., arriving in D.C. an hour later. The melancholy line of mourners under hazy street lamps leading to the rotunda was miles long. A cop on horseback looked at the heap, leaned over and peered in at us, shook his head, and said we'd never make it on time. Twisting around and pointing behind, he suggested we drive out to Arlington. I have no idea how we found our way out there. But we drove through the cemetery gates before dawn, four boys shivering into the dewy lawn. We were there before the groundskeepers would place a carpet of fake grass around the dark rectangular hole, before soldiers staked out their posts, before secret service men in dark suits kicked us out of the low branches of a tree before the crowds of adults elbowed their way in front of us, before the Cassins, Nehru, Haile Selassie, Charles de Gaulle, his high hat high above the cold crowd. It has always mystified me that our typically overprotective suburban parents had allowed us to leave our safe homes that evening. Four coddled boys with combined social IQs too low to pass the American history regents, <laughs> piling into that green jalopy and heading out for a rendezvous with history. In five years, I would be married. In six years, become a dad, crooning Chris Christopherson's cautionary words about freedom to my baby boy. Decades would pass before I would teach each of my seven teenagers to drive. But some 55 years later, peering back through a lifetime of computer screens and windscreens, rumbling across endless highways and back roads, engines purring, engines failing, I know in my dad's soul that there are no satisfying answers to the really important whys of this life. And as a writer, I know that the story is not the story. The story is just a vehicle to drive us deeper into the unspoken real story. As it is here, with only hazy context and lost time as a roadmap, this tale is not simply about four dumb boys attending a slain president's funeral. The real story is about the moment I gripped my fingers around the plastic steering wheel of that 1956 Ford with its grossly underpowered engine, its hideous paint job, and press the gas pedal to the floor, driving us deep into the night and those first dark truths about the inscrutable, unimaginable world we'd be entering. Steve Lewis is a contributing writer at Talking Writing Magazine. 
and senior editor and literary ombudsman for Read 650. His new novel, The Lights Around the Shore, is published by Moonshine Cove. Andy Rosenthal received a BA degree in English from the University of Delaware and a dual MA in medieval literature and creative writing from Temple University. Her first novel, The Bookseller's Sonnets, was selected as a National Jewish Book Council Book of Note. Here's Andy Rosenthal, recorded on stage reading Driver's Seat. You sit in your Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme, hands clenched white on the wheel. It is the final hour that separates July from August of 1987. You are 17 years old, hazel-eyed with auburn hair cut asymmetrically. In front of you, just beyond the windshield, lie the waters of a lake called Inishri, named for the Yeats poem you studied this past year as a junior in Honors English. The lyric chants itself as you feel the car's soft upholstery through your torn, white shorts. I will arise now and go, and go to Inishree. But it is not the Irish lake that Yeats loved which looms in front of you. It is instead a small, deep local pond approximately four minutes from the suburban New York home where you grew up, and you are parked there, deciding whether or not to drive headlong into it. You take your hand from the wheel and run it over the pillowy front seat, wondering how quickly the water will fill the wells of the driver and passenger sides, whether your body will float or sink, if there is some way to make the time between submerging and drowning pass more quickly. Your car is heavy and solid. You imagine it like sunken treasure among the creeping vines and soft sand of the underwater. You think of Chappaquiddick and how the divers found the girl with her pale, pretty face pushed up against the rear window. You are not a delicate blonde, but a man and his desires have left you here at the water's edge just the same. For within the hour that has just passed, you somehow got up and walked out of the tiny basement bedroom unlocking the door your boyfriend had fastened shut. The entire party was reduced to the beat of the music and the strength of his body as he pushed you down, held your wrists, and forced your clothes off. Afterward, you somehow managed to pull yourself together. You tolerated his apology and stumbled to the car. You drove to the other side of the lake, to the beach, where he first kissed you a year ago, when you were still a virgin, and he was just a boy you knew from the next town over. You dimmed your headlights and considered your two options, live with this truth or die because of it. Across the lake, the party continues on into the night. You feel as if you are saying goodbye to your friends, to the world, as if within the flickering lights across the water, bright souls beam back messages of farewell. Your tentative foot feels for the gas pedal. A trembling hand lifts itself toward the gear shift, threatening to pull it down towards drive. You listen one last time to the outside world, windows open to the humid night, 
expecting the spattering of sand and gravel kicking out from under your wheels. You hear the lapping of water against the shoreline. And in that sound, you understand you will have to carry this night in your heart forever. Your chest full of sharp stones that will cut from the inside. You are unsure you can live with this memory, now woven into every fiber of your torn clothes, the stain of blood soaking into the pale blue upholstery. And you know that the water will wash away all these secrets, leaving this night to steal and silence. With your hand on the gear shift, you look out through the windshield, and the darkness is suddenly full of stars. A thin song emerges from the radio, harmonizes with the night sounds of water and wind. A moment passes. You flick on the headlights, put your foot to the pedal. You feel the heavy car push itself into reverse, and the stars blaze above as July becomes August. I will arise and go, you tell yourself. You drive away. Andy Rosenthal is a frequent lecturer on the subject of synagogue engagement, outreach, conversion, and interfaith issues. She's an accomplished musician, and in addition to playing seven instruments, she also sings with a number of local choirs. She's a native of Westchester County and lives in New Rochelle, New York. Catherine Mayer, known as Kathy and Kate, is a potty mouth writer, humorist, and activist, writing out loud with humor and angst about social issues, parenting, midlife, and gun violence prevention. She's a reluctant inductee into AARP, a mom of four mostly grown and flown kids, and an aspiring writer with rejections to prove it. Here's Kate, recorded on stage at the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle, reading The Uphill Battle. Kathy, get your foot off the goddamn clutch. His voice is thunderous, and he's restrained in the passenger seat, not by a seatbelt, but by his gigantic dad hands braced against the dashboard. Like he could bench press the car up the hill through sheer will. Well, I struggled behind the steering wheel of a ship brown Datsun hatchback, jerking up a steep dirt road like a roller coaster lurching toward the peak, trying desperately not to plummet backwards, where behind us, the barn and the fields and the horses all shrank to Fisher-Price replicas in the rearview mirror. Take your foot off the goddamn clutch! He spit goddamn clutch like a sputtering exhaust, loud and shocking, in sharp staccato, not for the first time, or the second, or the tenth, but every single time my navy ked sneaker floated near the elevated rubber pedal, instead of the smooth quick step he had taught me, press release floor. See, Kath, it's easy. It's like breathing. Don't overthink this. I was 10. <laughs> Maybe 12, but I really don't think so, because by 12, I could drive any club anywhere. I was probably 10. Regardless, I was too young to drive. Yet here I was, on the steep laneway, learning how to stop and go on an impossible incline without riding the goddamn clutch. I could already drive a standard, a manual stick shift. I even knew how to jumpstart a car like a magician. But this, this dead stop on a steep hill, proved impossible 
My hands were slippery, clutching the pleather steering wheel. The hill so steep, my sweaty thighs kept sliding backwards. So I had to pull myself forward so my feet could reach the gas and the brake and skim the clutch I was forbidden to ride. You can do this, Kath, he cheered on. Once you can do this, you can do anything. The anything he wanted me to do was help drive the junk cars that he would buy out of the penny saver or classifieds. Fixer-uppers, he would then tow home, plates or no plates, license or no license. He needed a second driver, and that driver was me. My dad was a motorhead, a gearhead, a grease monkey, buying and fixing cars his entire life. By day, he was a math professor, but he'd fix and tinker cars every chance he could, spending weekends at garages around town and Napa auto parts stores, talking horsepower and torque with anyone who would listen. He smelled like 10W40, WD40, turtle wax, armor all, all the time. He'd always search for his favorites, old, broken down, and forgotten Porsches. He wanted the old speedsters, the coupes, the cabriolets, and when he discovered one rotting in a barn someplace, this is where I came in. He'd tether the prize to his winter beater truck with a scratchy rope as thick as my scrawny arm He'd loop one end around the undercarriage of the treasure, the other to the back of a Sanford and Son pickup truck. <laughs> then, like a dachshund, slinky pull toy, him leading the way in the truck and me behind the wheel of the latest jalopy, we would inchworm our way back home, push and pull through country roads, staying off the main drag, away from the cops, back home, where the latest clunker would bounce into the driveway, and if my mom knew about it, be parked proudly in front of the next of the other shells. But more often than not, he was tugged out back, behind the house, over the knoll, into the tree line, like we were hiding evidence from the cops or my mother. <laughs> Our backfields were littered with automotive carcasses in varying states of decay, awaiting their time in his garage. Foot off the clutch, more gas now, Kath, you can do this easy, easy, he coaxed his de deep dad voice oozing encouragement like a slow rolling boil and before I knew it we were moving forward not back you got this now gas 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 and gravel spun out of the back dust cropping the road behind us the engine roaring as we lurched up the hill my dad erupting in joy his hands off the dashboard wrapped around me blocking my view of the road ahead and clapping the Datsun in an explosion of joy hooting and hollering prouder than proud and we spun up to the top of the hill and headed home. Catherine Mayer is occasionally funny on Instagram and Twitter at Kathy Kate Meyer and plays well with others on Facebook. Her blog is a National Society of Newspaper Columnist Award winner, and she's received the Connecticut Press Club Award for Best Personal Blog in Connecticut and has received Blog Her Voice of the Year honors. Her essays appear online, in print, and most often on fridges. You can learn and read a great deal more at katherinemayer.com. Our executive producer is Richard Koloth. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Mayer, Karen Duquesse, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.
Support for Read 650 comes from the National Arts Club, whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in fine and performing arts. Feature programs focus on all disciplines of the arts, and the National Arts Club hosts both members-only and weekly free public events, including exhibitions, theatrical and musical performances, along with lectures and readings. Learn more at nationalartsclub.org. Read 650 contributor David Masello is an essayist and poet who writes about art and culture. For today's edition of Between the Lines, David opens a window into his daily writing space, his New York City apartment, and describes the adaptations he's made to mitigate the noise and distractions that surround him. For 12 years, I've lived across the street from a construction site. Never a good situation for a person who makes his living as a writer. What was once a three-building stretch of early 20th century tenements whose rusted fire escapes appeared to ignite every evening with the setting sun, was demolished and replaced by a five-story skeleton of an office building, which required the digging of a deep foundation. A quick glance at the structure in progress from the sidewalk, one could see it was a tilt. Indeed, the city deemed it structurally unsound, and so I lived through the demolition of that building, followed by construction for years delays of materials, strikes, developers' bankruptcies, of a taller building that required the digging of a deeper foundation. And during that reconstruction, a mistake was made. An extra floor was added between floors. To hide that costly error from the clients, the workers began demolition of that additional floor at night on a weekend. How did I write my articles and personal essays, poems and one-act plays with construction so close that upon raising my bedroom blind each morning, the construction workers would wave at me? There are only so many options for workspaces, quiet or otherwise, in my 625-square-foot one-bedroom on the 18th floor of a Manhattan building. I've since moved to the 21st floor. The only semblance of quiet I could find was in my tiny bathroom. There, every morning, for years, I'd retreat to write. Yes, sometimes sitting on the toilet, lid down, laptop or notebook perched on my lap, white noise machine whooshing beside me. When jackhammers were at their loudest, I'd retreat further into that 40-square-foot domain, filling the chink between the door and floor with a towel, inserting earplugs, placing a chair in the tub, and closing the shower curtain, as if that would help. Weeks ago, that building across the street was completed. Though billed as a nine-story structure, it rises almost to my 21st floor, since each floor is double or triple in height. On the day the building was done, the construction foreman whose belly has enlarged over the years to resemble a walking Volkswagen Beetle, waved to me at my window. Sorry if we bothered you, he yelled over. What stands there now is the gleaming United Arab Emirates mission to the United Nations. Ironically, a diplomat who works there lives in the apartment right next to me. A lovely young mother with two adorable children who play in the apartment hallway as if it were a private playground, their soccer ball ricocheting against my door. 
When I see her at the elevator in elegant traditional Arabic garb, she often apologizes. I hope they're not bothering you, she says. After all, this is a quiet neighborhood and a quiet building, and I understand that you are a writer. David Rossello is executive editor of Milieu, a national print magazine about interior design. Previously, David held senior positions at Town & Country Magazine, Country Living, Art and Antiques, Travel and Leisure, and others. Prior to his magazine work, he was a hardcover nonfiction editor at Simon & Schuster. He lives and works in New York City. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where writers of all genres contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. If you like today's episode, please share it with someone in your life who you think will enjoy it too. And if you have a smart speaker, consider listening to the show while making dinner or doing chores around the house. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Stephen Lewis, Andy Rosenthal, Catherine Mayer, and David Masella. Our unsung hero this week is writer Angela Derickis-Taylor. Angela opened doors and created opportunities for Read 650, helping us bring our live show to audiences in Westchester County and the lower Hudson Valley. And she helped create some of those first-class wine and cheese receptions that followed those live events. Between a demanding full-time job, teaching six yoga classes a week, and pursuing her own creative interests, Angela had to step away from her advisory team, but we're so grateful to Angela for the lift she's given the organization, and we trust she'll continue to grace our stage with her gentle presence and her stories. Angela, for all of us at Read 650, we thank you. For more Read 650, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you so much for listening today and for spreading the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.